audio is from Deering Christian Church. Join us Sunday mornings at either 9 or 10.30 a.m. All right, now I know November is a little ways off now. Seems like ancient history. Um, But as we moved towards November about this time last year, you couldn't help it if you're watching the news or anything. I mean, it just seems like, is that that just life in these United States that there's always some election we're working toward? I mean, they're already starting. And I'm not talking about the the, um, semi, you know, every four years right in the middle, you know, those those midterm elections where you got Senate, you got Congress, you you got the House, you got all those things taking place. I mean, they're already talking about the next presidential election. I mean, it just like, it never, ever, ever ends. Now, okay, I've got, if anybody here has presidential aspirations, like, like I think I want to do that. I think I would like that job. I think I would be pretty good at it. Um, I'm going to tell you how you might not want to go about that process. Just imagine if this individual would be successful running for high office. And this is the slogan. You know, you got to have a slogan. I'm telling you, if you're going to run for any office, you got to have yourself a slogan. How about this one? Tell me if you think this would be successful. This is the slogan that I'm going to run on. You want to divide this nation right down the middle? I'm your guy. All right? You think that would, you think that would work? Would that be a good one? You know, I mean, I'm talking about an honest politician here for a change, you know, who's actually saying what they're going to do. How about, how about this one? Have you ever heard of the great divide? Call me the great divider, right? Well, isn't that catchy? I mean, isn't that good? Can't you see that? Just, I mean, I could see that planted in somebody's yard, you know, vote for the great divider. Wouldn't that, that would be wonderful, wouldn't it? I can tell you, brothers and sisters, with confidence that the greatest leader to ever walk the face of this earth was a unifier. But you know what else he was? He was a divider. He was, just by his very nature. We call him Jesus. And wherever he went, he divided people. Interesting. Today, what we're looking at in John chapter 10 is preceded by one of my most very favorite um, encounters of Christ with an individual. Right? If you look to John chapter 9, now I'm going to read much from it, but, but I'm going to summarize it here for, for you just a little bit. I, in my Bible, I actually have this written in, I haven't put it in this one yet, Zach, but I've gotten written in my, my other Bible I carried for many years. Uh, above John you know, chapter 9, I had written the spunky blind man. All right, Um, because I just love this guy's story, and I love his heart, and I love his attitude. I've got to be honest with you. This is kind of what that looked like. Jesus saw a blind man. He's in Jerusalem. Jesus sees a blind man, and his his apostles ask him, interestingly enough, uh, "Hey, Lord, why is the guy blind? Is he blind because of his sin or the sin of his parents?" And Jesus turns to them, I'm sure, with a little bit of, just a little bit of frustration and says, neither. He is blind so that God's glory can be shown through him. So then he proceeds to turn around. Now my wife, this would, this would bug her, I gotta be sure. My wife is a nurse. If you have nurses, I have like, there are so many nurses in, in my family. It's like, there's a bunch of them. And let me tell you something about nurses. After a, after a long day at the hospital, whether it's surgery, whether it's OB like my wife or, or acute care, wherever it might be, 
If they had a lot of things happen that particular day, you're going to hear about it at dinner. And it's going to ruin your meal. Just, just be prepared for it. Be ready for it. Because they will talk about stuff that you do not want to hear. Especially when you're trying to eat meat. All right, It's just not going to work out all that well. But here's the thing about my wife. She can watch all these things. She will do things that I can't even imagine. But you know what she can't handle? Spit or mucus. It's like, you can handle all that other stuff, but you can't handle me going... <clears throat> You can't handle that, seriously, all right? I mean, she'll give me the look, and I mean the look if, if I'm doing that, especially at dinner time. I was like, you know what story you just told? I have earned the right to go, <clears throat> I have, okay? I don't know what my wife would think about this story, because you know how Jesus heals this guy's eyes? He spits on the dirt, makes clay from it, rubs it on the guy's eyes, and then he says, go to the pool of Siloam and wash it off. The man does exactly what Jesus tells him to, keeping in mind he doesn't know what Jesus looks like because he's blind, goes to the pool, washes his face, washes his eyes, and he is healed immediately. Still not knowing what the guy who healed him looks like or even not knowing much about him. Obviously, this makes, this makes the rounds. I mean, this catches people's attention. This guy was blind from birth. So the Sanhedrin catch wind of this. By the way, Jesus did this on the Sabbath. All right, Ooh, don't want to heal anybody on the Sabbath. That gets the Sanhedrin upset. So they pull forward this once blind man before him and start questioning him. And this is what is said. Look, look at John chapter 9. We're just going to read one verse from it. Keeping in mind what I told about Jesus, the great divider. Says this, therefore, some of the Pharisees were saying, This man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. How dare he heal someone on the Sabbath? But others were saying, How can a man who is a sinner perform such signs, such miracles? And there was what? A division amongst them. So they got the blind guy before them. They don't get enough information about him. He's like, I guess the guy who healed him, I have never even seen him. I don't know much about him. I would say he's a prophet. So they've set him aside for a moment and bring his parents on board to find out if this guy was really blind. Like, yes, he was, he's always been blind. From birth, he was blind. And then they start to question the parents. Now, the parents are nervous about this because the, the religious leaders, the Sanhedrin, have the authority to cast anyone out of the temple, meaning you can't come worship at the temple anymore. These are Jewish people. They equated worshiping God with a dot on the map. So if you're kicked out of the temple, that's a big deal. And they didn't want to be kicked out of the temple. So they said, hey, our son is old enough. He can speak for himself. Leave us alone. All right. So, so they dismiss the parents, bring the blind man back before them. And man, what happens next is awesome. He proceeds to lecture the Sanhedrin. And they get very upset about this. They kick him out. Kick him out of the temple. Jesus hears about this. He goes and finds a blind man. Understand, remember, this guy doesn't know what Jesus looks like. But Jesus finds him, tells this man who he is, and the man worships him. Now here's the deal. When you got Jesus in Jerusalem, there's always some spies and there's some Pharisees in the background watching what's taking place. So they see all this interaction between Jesus and this formerly blind man and they pout about it. And they ask Jesus, well, what do you say? Do you think we're blind, teacher? And Jesus says, yeah, you're right. He's not blind. 
but you are. And Jesus follows that with a story. Now, this isn't the typical type of parable that Jesus would tell. It looks a little different. It's kind of more of a metaphor, an allegory. But he tells this story. And what we see in this is Jesus says who and what he is. He is not only a leader, he is a shepherd leader. Now, this is not, this is not something that's brand new to the people Jesus was speaking to. Their minds would immediately go to Ezekiel 34. Now, you don't have to turn there. But Ezekiel was a prophet of Israel during the time of captivity in the Old Testament, some four or five hundred years before this. And God speaking through his prophet Ezekiel was getting onto, in a major way, the spiritual leaders of Israel at the time who were failing miserably at their job of being shepherds of Israel. So, Jesus is going to repeat that tale. Why don't you look to John chapter 10, beginning with verse 1, and we're going to read a while, so get your Bibles open, okay? John 10, beginning with verse 1. Jesus speaking, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter by the door of the fold of the sheep, but climbs in by some other way, he is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls out his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he puts forth all his own, he goes ahead of them, and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. A stranger they simply will not follow, but they flee from him because they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech, Jesus spoke to them, but they did not understand what those things were which he had been saying to them. So Jesus tries again. So Jesus said to them again, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved, and he will go in and out and find pasture. The thief only comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not the shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and is not concerned about the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Even as the Father knows me and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also. And they will hear my voice and they will become one flock with one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have the authority to lay it down and I have the authority to take it up again. This is my commandment I received from my father. A division occurred again amongst the Jews because of these words. Many of them were saying, He has a demon and he's insane. Why do you listen to him? Others were saying, These are not the sayings of a demon possess, of one demon possessed. A demon cannot open the eyes of the blind. Can he? You see, this 
teaching of Jesus was not only an indication of who Jesus was and what type of leader he was. He was a shepherd. This was also an indictment of the lack of compassionate leadership on the part of the Pharisees. Who were supposed to be the leaders of this people? The Pharisees. Let me ask you something, guys. I kind of summarized it for you in John chapter 9. What was the response of the Pharisees to this poor fellow? This poor fellow, born blind, been led around his whole life by the hand because he could not see anything. Still dependent upon his parents because he could not see anything. And now he is healed. And how did the Pharisees respond to him? With joy? With excitement that this healing had taken place? No, they kicked him out of the temple. I mean, seriously, what kind of leadership is that? You see, when Jesus talks in this way, he is talking not only about who he was, but about the other shepherds and the lack of leadership that they were providing. Now, for us to understand this fully, we need to understand a little bit of something about shepherding in that time in the Middle East, which... From what I understand from listening to quite a bit of the teaching of Ray Vanderland, some of it hasn't changed a whole lot in the last 2,000 years. Some of it has not. But the shepherding there looked a little different than the shepherding I see is when we go out to Colorado sometimes and they have these huge herds of sheep that fill up the mountainside and they've got five dogs out there and this loner shepherd um, that's out there with them. And, and, and that, that is not the case of what's taking place in this day and in this time. Shepherds would have their flock, they would have their own, and they would bring them to the sheepfold. They, were, they would come to this place, now understand, this is usually a rock-type fence enclosure. And it would not just be the sheep of one, of one flock that would be in there. There would be a bunch of sheep from a bunch of different flocks. we got some cattle people here, probably not too many sheep people. Um, the newbies were at the first service, all right. Um, but we do have some cattle folks here. Now tell me this, cattle folks. Is that a recipe for success or disaster? Take about five different herds from five different people, throw them into one corral, go out to the front of that corral, Mike Isle, and say, hey, cows, 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 cows. Load up in the stock trailer. No, only, only my cows, only my cows. Come on, come on in. Is that gonna work? Have you ever seen that work? It doesn't work with cows. It doesn't work with kids either, does it? But anyway, that's a whole different story. So this is a little bit different look to this. They've got all of these sheep. They would be there for the night for the protection of the place. And it was time to take the sheep out to pasture. Now, understand something. Pasture in that place is not what we think of as pasture. We would call it an arid region that has nothing, okay? But it is pasture. And you can raise sheep and goats in that environment. So the shepherd would come and he would call to his flock. And guess what? They would come. Only the sheep of his flock. Because the sheep would only come to the voice that they knew. Now Ray Vanderland, and I'm assuming he's done his homework and this is true. But this is, when I was studying some of this cultural, this cultural thing, this cultural shepherding, he says this. To this day, if a shepherd dies unexpectedly, guess what they do with the flock? They slaughter him, they kill him. Because they will not follow the voice of anyone else. Is that something or what? All right. 
And the point that is being made here is the voice and hearing the voice. There is so much to this teaching of Jesus in John chapter 10 about the voice of the shepherd and the sheep hear and they obey and they listen and they come. I mean, we just saw this lived out. Whose voice did the blind man, formerly blind man, whose voice did he respond to? That of the Pharisees? No, they kicked him out. He responded to the voice of the shepherd. But as you continue to look through this, Jesus says, I am the door. This is kind of a short parable inside of a parable. And the closest thing, to be honest with you, if you look closely at this, it doesn't seem to fit the context very well to what's taking place within this picture of a shepherd and his sheep. But it fits very well with what Jesus would be saying just just only shy of a year later. When we read in John 14, when Jesus has his closest followers with him in that incredible passage where he says this, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. He is the door, he is the way. And then, as Jesus continues in his teaching, we see this, the comparison contrast, not much of a comparison, more of a contrast, between the shepherd and the thieves. The thieves that only come to steal and to harm And inflict harm upon the flock. To use the flock. And then he goes on to another comparison contrast between the shepherd and the hired hands. The hired hands aren't, it's not that they're bad, they're just not invested. It's not their sheep. So if the time of danger comes, they're gone. They're gone. This paycheck isn't worth this. You can fight the wolves yourself. I'm out of here. I can work for somebody else, okay? And then Jesus talks about the other sheep. Let me tell you something. Family and God, it's a good thing that he brought that up, okay? Because those other sheep are us. This is prior to the book of Acts. This is prior to the Gentiles, the non-Jews, coming into into this arrangement between God and people through his son, Jesus Christ. And Jesus says, there's another sheep. They're on their own, but I will pull them in and they will be one with my people. There is so much here. And when it comes to the unsurpassed, the mighty leadership that Jesus Christ portrayed and he exemplified in this passage, we're going to focus on just a, a few words here. And something we need to know from the beginning is this. I think you know this. You've heard this before. We are the sheep. All right. It's funny. I said that. And in the first service, um, Craig and Julie Newby were right there. And they kind of laughed when I said, we are the sheep. Because they know sheep. Let me tell you something about sheep. They're not that bright. All right. They're just not. They're not. So when we think of being the sheep, we're like, oh, man. It's true. We're helpless without Christ. But take that out of your mind for a moment. All right. Because what Jesus is pointing out here, making very clear, isn't the fact that the sheep can be confused sometimes, so on and so forth. What he's pointing out is the fact that he loves the sheep. And the sheep are his own. His sheep know him. And he knows them. You guys have heard me talk about this before in the past, about the difference between knowing about and knowing I know you've heard this. You've heard me talk along these terms. I'm sorry. I'm sorry to tell you this is so embarrassing. But back when I was a little kiddo, before I knew any better, I was a Raiders fan. I'm sorry about that. So, so sorry. And it's crazy. I'm a Chiefs fan now. That's like, that's, I mean, that's just crazy. It's embarrassing. It's absolutely embarrassing. It's before I came to the Lord. 
you know, but <laughs> just kidding. Uh, so anyway, but, but the main reason I liked the Raiders so much wasn't because that they were actually pretty good at that time, is because of one player on the team, and his name was Marcus Allen. I knew so much about Marcus Allen. He was he, he went to college at USC. He won the Heisman Trophy. He came in. He was the rookie of the year in the NFL. Broke all of these rookie records. He, he helped lead the team to a Super Bowl in those first couple of years. And, and, and guess what? I was born on his birthday. That was just the coolest thing to a fourth grader. You know what I'm saying? I could tell you so much about Mark. I had Marcus Allen books, people. All right? I could tell you all about him. But I didn't know him. I knew my dad. I knew about Marcus Allen. And there's a big, big difference there. Why don't you take a look? Once again, we're going we're gonna to look at this passage a little bit more in John chapter 10. We're just going to pick out some verses. We're going to cherry pick some here, all right? We're going to look to verse 14 and see what it says in those couple of sentences. Jesus makes this statement again. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me, and then check out the example for knowledge that he uses. Even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. Brothers and sisters, the Greek word for know here is gnosko. It is a very, very powerful word. And Jesus shows its power by giving us this incredible example of the way in which he knows us as his people. And what example does he use? He uses the intimate knowledge, the unity, the strength of relationship that exists between God the Father and God the Son. There is no more dynamic duo. Of course, you throw the Holy Spirit into it, so it's kind of like the dynamic trio there, all right? But there is no, nothing more powerful than the relationship that exists between God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And look, that's the example he gives for us. I know my sheep, my sheep know me, like I know my Father, and my Father knows me. This is it, brothers and sisters, we cannot ever forget this. God knows you better than you know yourself. Does that encourage you or frighten you? <laughs> You know those things that you hide from others? You know those things that you hide even from those you are closest to, your, your close family, maybe even your spouse? God knows. He knows your book front to back. He knows about you that you haven't even done yet. He knows you. And I gotta be straight with you. Sometimes that is a little frightening to me. But at other times, it's encouraging. Because God knows everything about me. He knows the stuff that I hide from others. And even knowing that about me, guess what? He still loves me as one of his flock. And he died for me. And he died for you. He knows us. But that's not the end of it. He knows us and he laid everything on the line. Let's take a look at this. You're going to see a phrase in this, this mini-sermon of Jesus' here that is used a number of times. You've already seen the Good Shepherd, but there's something that follows it. And it follows it more than one time. We'll start in verse 11, we'll jump down to verse 15, then we'll jump down to verse 17 and beyond it. This is what he says. 
Verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Let's jump forward just a little bit. In verse 14, he says he's the good shepherd. He says it again. And then in verse 15, he says this, I lay my life down for the sheep. Jump to verse 17. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have the authority to lay it down and I have the authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father, you know, when I was younger, I, I kind of I had some, I mean, I, I, I liked history. I really, really did. I have always been um, a fan of, of, of history. And when you go from, from junior high into high school, you hit that time, because in junior high, I don't know if it's still this way, but in, in fifth grade, that was the time we started diving into history. And it was, is it still fifth grade in Kansas that you dive into Kansas history? Anybody with me on that? Everybody's looking at me like, I don't know what you're talking about. Okay, it's fine. We're old. It's fine. Okay, so, so and then you kind of move on through junior high, middle school. You jump into high school, and then you have that class, U.S. History, um, that you will go through at some point. And as I looked through that, there were two that really jumped off the page to me. One was Daniel Boone, all right, and the other was Davy Crockett, king of the what? Wild Frontier, you remember, you remember from history class or the song, that's what I want to know, all right? So you got these frontiersmen, there's a reason why they were, they were heroes to me. This is something we have to understand about Jesus. He is a shepherd, but very, very much so, he was a frontiersman as well. This is the frontiers that he came to conquer, to capture, if you will, from the fall of mankind ever since Adam and Eve made that incredibly horrible mistake of sin, disobeying God in a way that's just almost unfathomable to us, but we would have done the same if we'd been in their place, I'd be willing to guess. And from that time on, death had us as people in its crosshairs. And Jesus, he reversed that, he turned it around. Jesus put death That was his target. That's what he was going to destroy. He didn't come just to tame death. He came to conquer death. But here's the thing. Is death a frontier? Yeah, it's still kind of a frontier. I I don't know anybody recently in the past couple thousand years that that left the realm of death and came back. Now, I'm not talking about somebody resuscitated. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm somebody who's been dead for a while, and they come back to tell us a little bit about it, okay? We still see it as a frontier, but it's a frontier that has been conquered by Jesus. But this is the thing. That is not the only frontier that he laid claim to. Let's leave the Gospel of John just for a second. We'll come back to it before it's all said and done. But let's turn over to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15 is written by the Apostle Paul and it is the resurrection chapter of the epistles, of the letters written to the churches. Guys, it is an incredible chapter in the Bible. And it's been on my mind a lot this past week. 
And when we look to this passage in 1 Corinthians 15, man, it's worthy of being read, every bit of it. We don't have time to do so today, so I'm going to cherry pick some from it too. I want you to look at 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20. This is what it says. But now Christ has been raised from the dead. And then it says this little snippet right behind that. The first fruits of those who are asleep. Do you understand what that is getting at? Jesus isn't the last one that's going to be raised. And then moving on a little bit further over into verse 50, Paul explains what he's talking about in very colorful language when he says this, Now I say this, brethren, brothers, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable. And we will be changed. Are you beginning to see the other frontier that Jesus Christ blew the doors open for, it's resurrection. Do you see what Paul is getting at in 1 Corinthians 15? It's not just Jesus who came out of the grave. Every one of us will. Every single one. And we will be changed. I got a feeling yesterday, JB, long about mile 24 you are probably thinking in a very real way, it's going to be nice to have a body one day that doesn't hurt anymore. Okay? You know that time when you figured out that your watch was two miles off and you thought you were at mile 26 and you found out you were at mile 23 and a half and you're like, that's good news. I thought I was done. That was good times, huh? The frontier is this, brothers and sisters. One day, pain will be a distant memory. God will take these bodies of ours and transform them into something imperishable that will last forever. You see, Jesus did not just come to die for us. He came to resurrect for us, not just because we are saved because of that power, but because he even in that time modeled for us what is coming when we will be raised brand new when that trumpet sounds. Brothers and sisters, we come to our time of communion. We say thank you. We say thank you, Lord, not just for what you have done for me. The fact that you went to the cross and died for me, that's the Good Friday message. The Easter message is this. You conquered death. It could not hold you. And because of your great power, it's not going to hold us either. No grave can hold a man 
or a woman of God. And when we come to our time of communion, we thank him for that. He paid the price. He laid it down. He laid it all on the line for you and for me.